This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is Bob Wachter. I'm chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, and we're starting a new series here, Fireside Chats with prominent leaders on our faculty and over time elsewhere, uh, and largely for the house staff and the students to give them an opportunity to see the person behind the CV. Uh, I'm thrilled today that our first participant is uh, Kirsten Bivens-Domingo, who's professor of medicine at UCSF, uh, heads of the Center for Vulnerable Populations, based at Zuckerberg San Francisco General, uh, and is uh, recently finished a term as chair of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. Tell us a little about your upbringing. I'm an army brat. I grew up um, all over. My mother is uh, German, and I was born in Germany. And uh, uh, I didn't live any place longer than uh, three years, three or four years, until my parents uh, moved to Maryland, and when I went and I went to high school there. And uh, so that's where they live now. And what about your upbringing helps one understand the rest of your career? Um, you know, I don't know if any of you are, are, you know, grew up in military families, but there is something about moving every few years that gives you a sense of um, uh, sort of distilling sort of those things that are important and are not necessarily tied to place. It gives you a, a chance to, I think, meet and appreciate lots of different types of people. My parents are from very different backgrounds and moving with them. My mother was very committed to understanding wherever we were. So when we lived in Panama, she learned Spanish and we didn't just stay in the canals when we went everywhere. And so I think it broadened my horizons and, uh, and, uh, and, and actually probably made me sort of more willing to, to try something new, to move to a new place. And, uh, you know, so I think, I think it was a great upbringing. And in terms of interest in the kinds of things you focused on as a career, anything about your upbringing that, that, that helped you have that particular focus? Well, so I, you know, I've always been a science nerd. I went to a science high school. But I think uh, you know, I, my, my major in college was molecular biology. But then I was always interested in sort of the broader context. There's a lot about sort of what I do scientifically, but then how it fits into, you know, how science helps uh, translates to medicine, how we help uh, different types of populations with new discoveries. And so even so, uh, my undergraduate at Princeton, I was a molecular biology major and in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And I think there's something about um, just always trying to understand what, uh, how the very specific type of research I'm involved with sort of fits in the context of, of everything else. I noticed that, so you have a PhD in biochemistry. Why? <laughs> and how, how has that fit into your career? Yeah, so I was a molecular biology major at Princeton. I, um, that was a time when a lot of people at Princeton faculty had actually moved to UCSF, Bruce Alberts, Keith Yamamoto. They had moved from Princeton to, to uh, really found a lot of the great science that was being done here. Um, and I, I was a science, you know, I, I, I loved being in the lab, I loved research, and I came out here to UCSF actually to, to do my PhD. I worked with Harold Varmus um, bef- before he won the Nobel Prize, and then he won the Nobel Prize, and, um, and it, it was great. I, um, I have to say, in my first year in the lab, I went to Harold and I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to med school. Why didn't I go to med school right away? I'll tell you that. I, uh, I didn't know. I, we didn't have really a lot of doctors in my family. When I went to Princeton the first week at Princeton, everyone asked me, are you pre-med? 
are you pre-med? And Mm -hmm. I didn't know what pre-med was, but I knew the people who were asking were a little strange, Uh so I said no. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I didn't go to med school right away. So you came out to do a PhD? I came out to do a PhD. I thought you were an MD-PhD, so you came out to do a PhD, finished it? I came out to do a PhD, and after the first year, I I went to Harold, my advisor, and I said, I think I need to go to med school. I said, I love being in the lab, but I'm really interested in the application of what we're doing here. And he said, but you're really good in the lab, and you like being in the lab. And it was true. I did like being in the lab. And so he encouraged me to finish, and and I did love being in the lab. And as he um, moved then to the NIH to be the head of the NIH, I told him I was going to apply to med school. So I actually applied at the end of my PhD. Interesting. People often feel like I've got to have this five-year plan and stay on, stick with it and do these things that lead me to there. It sounds like your career has not been that exactly. Are you a five-year plan kind of person? Yeah, I have to say, um, I think a lot of people who claim that they've done their life that way are sort of lying. I think a lot of people <laughs> revise how their history goes up Reverse to... Reverse engineer it, that exactly, plan, right? Exactly, and that's certainly not been true for, for me. I will say that, um, you know... Um, it did take me a while to obviously get my job, right? So I went to, I did my PhD, and then I did my MD. I, um, I took five years to do my MD, because I actually had, uh, I got married and had uh, our son during my medical school, um, and then went to residency, and then uh, I, I uh, did my master's in epidemiology, because I realized the type of research I wanted to do would be better, I'd be better suited to do this in a, a clinical translational population type of research, not basic research. That took me a while to sort of arrive at those. But in some ways, um, I've arrived at exactly the type of job that I, I like. I think I, I love being a doctor. I, I love seeing, but I also love being a researcher. And having both of those sets of tools and being able to apply them um, in that way is exactly right. And sometimes people say, well, maybe I could have guessed that from when I was at Princeton and doing molecular biology and public policy. But... Um, uh, you know, took me a while to get there. My mom was happy that I finally did get a job after all those years of school. But uh, um, I, I don't know. I think I've always just done what seems like the right sets of things in order for me to, to ask the questions. Do you remember, was it one day where you said, the, ba- the biomedical research path is not the path for me. I'm going to do a different path? Or it was sort of a gradual evolution of the things that seem most interesting and important at the moment? Well, I, I, I think that, um, I do think, you know, as you continue down this, this career, it, the wonderful thing when you start in medicine, uh, start in science, you know, there are lots of doors open. And it's not that the doors close. You realize that um, there are areas that you want to, to uh, you, you have the best opportunity to make a contribution in. And so for me, um, I loved being in the lab. I think it is actually very hard to, to, um, to be fully immersed in laboratory research and be fully immersed in being a doctor. And for me, that compromise then was, well, I know I, I like to be able to ask and answer questions in the way one does when you are doing research. And so um, making the transition to more clinical population sciences made sense to me because it fit with me being a doctor. It fit with having a more applied approach. 
I will say I don't regret having the basic science training. There's a lot of rigor in the basic science training. And I think now, because of the work that we do, is very focused on how multiple factors contribute to health in different populations. Having an appreciation of the basic biological underpinnings is actually extraordinarily valuable. So um, I, I think it was the right way, even though you know maybe I could have arrived a little bit earlier where <laughs> what I was going to do. Um, I want to talk about mentorship a little bit. Let's start with uh, you are the Lee Goldman Chair, yes. uh, 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 or a Distinguished Professor, I think, of, of medicine. So uh, Lee was an important mentor for me as well. He's yeah. our former chair of the department. Talk about uh, Lee and his influence on you. He's now the Dean of uh, Medicine at Columbia. Yeah, I, I, um, as you know, Lee, Lee is, a, is a phenomenal scientist of, and, and mentor. And um, I was lucky when I was a... a um, a fellow, Lee was looking for people to, to work with him on his simulation model. He does, um, he does, uh, had been uh, working on a simulation model of cardiovascular disease in the U.S. And I started working with him as, as a fellow. Um, and, uh, and it was uh, really an extraordinarily, extraordinary scientific opportunity for me. It was very different than the exact things I was working on as a fellow. I was, I was interested in cardiovascular disease, interested in research, not quite interested in coronary disease, which is Lee's focus, but the opportunity to work with Lee was really extraordinary. And so I learned, um, I learned a lot about the science, and, and I learned just a lot about, you know, as you know, Lee is, uh, Lee is a, a tremendous thinker of what the most important questions are. And I think the things I learned from him are, the, are some of those very intangible things. You know, he used to say to me, um, you know, you should, you should not focus on just writing papers. You should focus on asking really important questions and questions that move the field forward. Um, he was very protective of, um, you know, your reputation and your brand and think about that and the way you write your papers and the way you choose your questions, the way you choose who you work with. And I think those types of things all uh, have stuck with me and, and then I also appreciate that actually the work I do is very different from what Lee mm-hmm. does. And, um, and I appreciated that he mentored me and, you know, still is an important mentor to me. And I think that all of those things together, I think, have really influenced how I think about my mentees, letting them do what they want to do, but also those core things about asking important questions, about protecting your, your brand as you are you know, engaging in these activities, I think are really, really that, important. That may seem a kind of odd concept for, for the house staff, you know, that you have a brand. So first of all, <laughs> tell, tell me, I'd love to hear what your brand is. And, and just what does that concept mean in the context of a career in academic medicine? What, 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 what is it shorthand for? Yeah, I mean that may maybe that sounds a little too bit too corporate. Maybe it sounds too much, you know, like I don't know Harvard Business School or whatever. Um, I think it is it is though about um, about uh, the reputation and no matter your your reputation, those things that people come to identify with your work. I think it implies to whether you're doing things clinically, whether you're doing things in a research sphere, educationally. It, it applies in all of those contexts. Over time, people come to to know and understand what you do based on um, uh, based on those things that I don't know. Maybe we would call them reputation or call them your brand. 
Um, and and I think over, sometimes you don't appreciate it as much when you're early on in your career how important those things are. They're the types of things you they're hard to get back if you start to lose them. They're mm-hmm. the things that are um, that you build up over time. Um, and uh, but but they they are really important. You know that, that we we work a lot on a you know on a supposed meritocracy, but there's a lot that uh, that sort of precedes us. You came to UCSF because this is a wonderful institution that will be part of your brand and how both, you know, the high quality of the institution, but also there are many things that are wonderful about the way we train here at UCSF that probably will also become part of the way you think about things and, and your brand. So um, so I think all of those things, um, you know, I, I learned because Lee said them explicitly, but also I know the way people react um, to me in the context of the research group I was in. I know the types of things, doors that have been opened because of that reputation that's preceded us. And I think those types of things are important. I think if they're constraining to you, if you think you can only do what others have done before you, that's a bad thing. And so I've never wanted to constrain me. But but I think recognizing that, that, that your reputation over time in this field, um, those things are important. Yeah, I want to highlight that it's not just, you're not just talking about, I am a researcher who does this kind of work. No. It's working with you is a terrific experience. Uh, she's a terrific mentor. Uh, she gets things done on time and over to, you know, delivers more than she promises. All those things are part of your brand and you're establishing them and either promoting them or subverting them with essentially everything you do. Absolutely. I'll give you two, two examples sort of to make them more clear. So, you know, so in the research that I do, we do simulation modeling. Simulation modeling is, is notoriously um, hard for others to actually understand all the specifics of. But we've had many years of doing simulation modeling. We have a reputation, Lee's, Lee's reputation, ours, that we've continued. I'm really fortunate to continue to work with Lee that um, we have a reputation for asking important questions. We don't do a lot of work with industry. That's our choice because of the types of work that we do. And, and we have a reputation for sort of not, not taking, uh, of approaching things in a pretty objective manner. If we, if we find out that, you know, turns out that guideline isn't that great, um, then that's how we're going to report it. And that is part of the reputation of doing high-quality science, being objective, not taking a particular point of view, um, I think all of those things play in. I think when I was the chair of the task force, what the task force did over time is we realized that um, we, you know, the, the task force sets um, guidelines for uh, preventive services. Um, we had we realized in 2009 when we issued our mammography recommendations. That's when people called us the death panel and uh, all sorts of uh, were very critical. We realized that part of our problem had been was we were only speaking to primary care providers and that the real audience for for our recommendations was everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we should we that that women that um, consumer groups that hospitals everybody was was interested in in what we were saying, and so we realized that we didn't have to, we didn't suffer a, a problem with our brand, but we hadn't really communicated well to all of the people who were interested in what we were saying. And so we spent a lot of time the first few years I was on the task force talking with people, just talking about what we do, how we approach it. And, and I think that was a good thing. And part of the mark of that is that, you know, when new recommendations come out and we talk to reporters, 
the reporters basically give us the benefit of the doubt that um, that there's probably something to why we got why we came up with this decision. They start with that. Mm-hmm. Then we still have to explain why we did it, and they're still going to ask us the tough question. But they don't start with, you know, what are you guys doing? That's crazy. That is part of you know what it is to you know to build sort of building on your past track record, but then also communicating it to, to other people. So let's toggle to the the Preventive Services Task Force and your role as chair. Um, what did you, that's you've told us one thing you learned that you didn't understand in the beginning that you're talking to yeah. a broad audience and you need to attend to how the audience is going to pick up the messages. What are the other things that you learned over the course of being in that role that you didn't understand in the beginning? Well, so so the first you know the first thing, set of things we learned were were probably just about um, about communicating, right? So communicating to to a broad audience, communicating effectively. Part of the reason we were labeled the death panel, you know, was that we had made, we had issued a recommendation. That's not a brand that you were looking no. for. Right? <laughs> we weren't trying for that brand. <laughs> okay. We issued a recommendation saying that women in their 40s um, should consider a mammogram. And we worded it by saying should not routinely get a mammogram. And not routinely is is a sort of convoluted way that if you... You know, if you if you do things in medicine where you understand that we do things routinely and then not routinely might mean, oh, you should consider it or not. But that doesn't translate well to a layperson. Right. They focus on the not. So we actually spent a lot of time figuring out, like, how to communicate. We we had great communications consultants. We have great communications so you did, Before team. you came out with the recommendation, you thought Absolutely. that through. And just take us into the room, if you're allowed yeah. to. All right, you do the science, you do the systematic reviews, and you now say it turns out we are not confident that doing a mammogram in a 43-year-old woman is beneficial. What is then the discussion about, oh, my God, how is this going to come out? How do we spin this? What is that? What's the flavor of that discussion? Yeah, so um, so um, first I'll say, you know, we've been around for 30 years. We're really guided by pretty strict procedures. And so, we, as you said, we do a systematic review with, um, you know, with evidence-based practice centers. You know, we, have, we, we shepherd a recommendation all along the way. And then in the room, the task force is 16 people, all of whom are, um, are clinicians and researchers. And one of the things that I... I, I wish everyone could come in that room because watching people who take care of patients and who understand the science struggle with a recommendation that we know has to be grounded in the science is really quite, um, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it was really a phenomenal experience because all of, you know, if you're a doctor, you understand what it means to have that conversation and to try to explain that to someone and to, and you know sort of the, all of the other sort of uh, uh, discussions and politics around these issues. So, so trying to be clear on the science in this context, I think, is, was one of our challenges. One of the things that, that happened over time as we realized we needed to communicate better is after we had, we've decided and we've voted and we decide what our grade's going to be in our recommendation, the communications team comes and says, okay, well, tell us how you're going to communicate it. And Do they come and they tell you this is going to cause no. people to no. hair to be on fire? No. You already know that, I assume. They say, <laughs> <laughs> they say, okay, I'm the reporter. These are the questions I'm going to ask you. And uh, it's, re- it's really, it's, that was a wonderful exercise because it turns out you, we can, if we can explain it to ourselves, that it's one thing. But if we can't explain it to the people who are coming to ask us the questions, 
um, there's a problem. And I, I think, um, you know, we make a lot, again, this is, again, we're talking about the Harvard Business School and the marketing and everything is that, that externality that sometimes we think, oh, that's not about the substance. But if you can't communicate uh, in that way, then you do have to wonder whether you have arrived at the decision in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't have to do with uh, we're shy about making, thing, making unpopular decisions. It doesn't have to do with popularity. It has to do with our ability to explain how we got there, and we should always be able to explain it. And I think that that was really, really extraordinarily useful experience for me. I, all the way through my career, I've been very interested in the science, but also in being able to put the science in context and be able to explain it and help others to see it and, and help, have, have that influence policy and other things um, that are important. The other thing that, that I think over time as we've realized is um, uh, although we work, we have our procedures and we work, that, that it's actually good to understand how subspecialties approach different conditions, about um, how patient advocacy groups approach things, about... And understanding that, not being afraid of having the conversations has actually been probably, that's been one of the most important things I learned as I moved into leadership roles. So being clear on that I'm not going to cave because I'm having these discussions, but having the discussions, appreciating how others view a particular set of scientific literature or the approach to prevention in a particular arena is actually really important. Was there a uh, difference in the politics and policies around PSA recommendations versus mammography recommendations and other things that relate to populations of men versus women? What do you think? Uh, I would guess. I would guess, but I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, yeah, I talked with someone recently who, you know, who says, uh, you know, the, the PSA is, is its own, um, you know, has its own uh, challenges. It has its own challenges scientifically, and as a, a particular preventive service, the PSA is not a really great test, and it's uh, the, the the science is sort of very, you know, the effects of doing PSA screening are not big. Well, and you're also you're trying to convince people that here is you might have a cancer and it's okay. That's exactly. a tough message. Exactly. Exactly. On the other hand, there are a lot of men who you know th- there's a lot of concern about cancer. Um, this is, um, you know, the parallel is often, you know, breast cancer and this is prostate cancer. And so this is something we want to be concerned about. So communicating, as you said, uh, concern for, for the condition, for, for this as, as, an, as an important thing, but also uh, saying that a test is not a great test to help you live longer or healthier um, is not the same as saying I don't care about you or prostate cancer or or something like that. So um, I think the hype around mammography is is much more. I think the 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 um, the the sense um, both from patient advocacy groups, from women's rights advocates um, around uh, around breast cancer and around mammography in particular. I think that 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 entire discussion is probably much is. It's much more driven by patient advocates. Mm-hmm. I think the, the PSA discussion, frankly, is also driven a lot by the urologists. It's a very important condition that the urologists are treating. And so I, I think that there's, there's a lot of, um, of push because of pro- professionally it's, it's an important condition that they are treating. Yeah. Uh, during the year that you were chair was also the year that we had a presidential election, yes. the year that uh, vaccination became a presidential policy issue. The year fake news became a thing. Yes. So how did all that play out 
as you had the, 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 the uh, opportunity to be chair in the with the backdrop of all the national politics. Right. Um, I'm trying to see if I can tell this story. Well, <laughs> no one else is going to see it. It's fine. Okay. You promise? <laughs> I'll just ignore the cameras that are. I won't tweet it. Yeah, so, uh, so the presidential election happened the beginning of November, and November 20th, I got a call saying, um, you've been called up to, uh, to Capitol Hill to testify in front of Congress. Um, there, um, uh, that the, um, one of the House committees is really interest, is um, sort of looking into the task force, whether we need the task force, whether there Transparency and Accountability Act, whether we have to do more things to make you accountable. And, um, and so, you know, I base, and, and they said, and you have, you know, you have essentially 10 days notice. So I spent my entire Thanksgiving um, you know, putting my speech together, getting all of our friends together to write letters of support. Um, you know, and for for us, letters of support included many, many letters. Probably the ones I love the most, saying we don't always agree with the task force, but the task force has a great process, and we need them to continue to say what the science tells us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did all that, and and we got called, and it was actually quite an interesting experience to testify, to have to answer questions. It was a day the Democrats were all voting for their leadership, so there were only Republicans in the room, so asking questions Terrific. only to Republicans, exactly. <laughs> Um, I learned later that, um, you know, so, so it was a great experience for me. And actually, to be perfectly honest with you, um, you know, as much as there is politics that you can pull your hair out, part of the process of having to explain what you do to people who are not, are not inclined to just believe what, that what you do is important is actually good. Um, and, and I think we made more, more we, we convinced more people who had just heard about the, the rhetoric I, I, I think I told this story at one of the retreats that um, our, our uh, government person had, uh, had helped me to prep for this, and I decided we were going to uh, talk to the Congress people before, before I was testifying. And so, um, you know, she put me in touch with the people from California and the people, you know, who had, you know, a daughter who's in med school here. Or, you know, I talked with all those people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then the last on my list, I have this Republican congressman from Indiana. And I'm like, give me a hint. What am I going to talk about with the Republican congressman from Indiana? And uh, our government affairs person says, well, you know, he's a doctor. You're a doctor. You know, you'll have something to talk about. And, you know, I, w- I knew that we were being called because of the, you know, the, it was a Republican congressperson who had called this, this uh, hearing. Um, but actually, you know, he came in and you talked like doctors talk, you know. So he said, yeah, I get what you're doing. I get the science. He says, it says I actually, he's, a, he's a, a CT surgeon. He says, I even get primary care because in Indiana we need primary care. Um, and he, it was actually really, um, he had particular concerns that we hadn't used too many Canadian studies because Canadian studies are not going to be as good as U.S. studies for some of the things we were doing. Um, (laughs) So some of the things were, you know, probably not the way I would have approached it, but enough were that there was enough meeting of the minds that he basically said, these are the things you should look out for tomorrow. And do you think the the task force is at risk going forward? Um, I... um, I actually, I actually think that the, the task force, um, probably because we've paid so much attention to communication and we've paid so much attention to trying to help others to understand that even if you don't always agree with what we're saying, that we do think everyone should understand the science, 
I don't. I don't think we're we're at risk. We are. We um, are housed by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and that is an agency that's always at risk. But I have a feeling the task force is not itself at risk. I do think we have to always pay attention. We have to walk this funny dance of being completely separate from the political winds and paying attention to the science, but being completely conscious of what else is going on and how we always communicate with others. Right. Uh, talk about the sort of hard, hard decisions you've had to make in your career, uh, and audacious decisions, things that could have gone badly but went okay. Or <laughs> most Another people one had, to put on for some <laughs> had a few that are like that. Um, I think that probably the hardest decisions I've had to make are, are involve sort of personnel decisions or people I've worked with or that, um, that we've had to change course and do things in a way that are, um, you know, not what I or the other person would have wanted. Um, I, I have tried to approach in our center and other things that I've led um, really having uh, sort of good, open working relationships with people. And, um, and, uh, and I think that that has ended up translating well into, um, into not making uh, changes in course be then personal attacks, but rather, um, rather about the mission of the organization and how we achieve that. And when there isn't a right fit, um, that you know, we have to continue to allow that person to move in their direction and the organization move in its direction. And um, I, I guess I feel comfortable being able to communicate about those things. And probably those are the most challenging. They're also hard to talk about because I don't want to say anything personal. But I, I've had those issues both in sort of my national leadership roles and in my center roles and others that I've had in the university. And I think um, I've, I probably, um, I, I probably, if you had asked me probably 10 years ago, I would have said I'd be really afraid of those types. And I've realized that um, I'm probably not that afraid of them I, uh, because I, I, because they're not personal. They, they are about communicating sort of what's important to the organization. What uh, advice do you have for young people starting careers? Anything that uh, <laughs> you've, you've already given a, a, a number of, of, of pearls, but anything in specific, specifically that you think you didn't understand at their stage that you wish you'd, you'd known? Um, so so I, I guess I would say... Um, you know, when you when you it, this is a wonderful stage to be in in your career, and you are going to look at all the wonderful things, options that you have available to you. I I always like to remind people that you still only see the people who are in front of you, and so you should explore and ask many more. As wonderful as Bob is, not everyone wants to be Bob <laughs> in the future, and you yeah. want to. Uh, so as you start to think of what you want to do to to really. To, to look a little bit more broadly and to talk with people about what they want to do. I think sometimes we think about that there is a hierarchy of things that we should be doing, whether that's I should be doing the specialty, I should be going into research. You know, um, uh, Sometimes people say to me, um, I know I should do research, but I don't want to work that hard. Um, I have to tell you, in my view, everyone I trained with, everyone I work with now works really hard. And I think you have to decide what you want to work really hard doing. 
Um, and so for me, I, I love doing research. I would never give that up. That's a, a core thing of what I want to do. I want to be able, I love being in the clinic, and then I want to know, well, why, you know, I want to know more about what I saw in clinic, and I want to be able to ask questions in my way. Those are pieces that I, I wouldn't give up. I like writing papers. I like writing grants. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to do that. And so I think the, the challenge for someone at this stage is to see all of the wonderful things that people do around them and then translate that into what is right for them. Ultimately, the, choice, the, the wonderful things about medicine in particular is that all the doors are open to you after you finish. You have so many things open to you. Um, but you shouldn't be guided by just you know the, the people you admire, what they do. That might not be the right thing for you to do. And... Um, and there are different ways that one can make an impact. Um, and because these careers are still, we work so many hours so long, you should do those things that are really fulfilling to you. When I tell people what type of questions you want to ask as a researcher, I usually tell people, you know, ask the questions that, about things that make you happy or things that make you really mad or uh, things that you know, are really uh, personal, emotional to you as a, as a resident. Because those are the things that sort of, they make you work all the long hours to figure out. And so, um, you know, that, that maybe sounds too emotional, but I think, you know, in the end, th- these are it's long where, hours. That's where the passion comes yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Talk a little bit about work-life balance and whether you've achieved uh. it and how you did. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a bad question? No. <laughs> um, so work-life balance, you know, I, I think... Um, the way I, I think about it is that these the wonderful things about these careers are the ability to control many things about your life. And so um, I think for me, in the particular way I constructed my career, it was the flexibility more than anything else. I, I, um, I, uh, I had my son during medical school. I worked you know, throughout. I didn't take a lot of time off. Um, uh, I had family around who helped, which was great. But I also had a, had a position once I took a job that, um, that was very flexible. It allowed me when I needed to, to, to be there when my son was finishing school. It allowed me to, um, and then, you know, I could work later at night in the things I want to do. I think everyone achieves the balance in the way that makes sense for them. I think the important thing is to recognize that the balance is important, but then not to prescribe how any one person should achieve the balance. For me, being able to be uh, there with my son when he finished school was really important for certain stages in his career. So for me, I wouldn't, you know, nobody should say it was so terrible that I worked at night. That was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And I think we achieve balance over, you know, over the course of, you know, weeks, months, and years, sometimes not on a daily basis because balance on a daily basis is hard. It sure is. <laughs> uh, maybe my last question, and it's something we, I cleared with you beforehand, but I think is worth raising. Can you talk a bit about the experience of being an African-American female in this world and the things that those of us who are not don't understand? Um, yeah, so I, I, think, um, I think all of our backgrounds are sort of wonderful to be able to bring to the, to our, the practice of medicine, to uh, the development of wonderful educational institutions like ours. I, um, I, I sort of believe inherently in the strength of having, uh, of, of, uh, of having a diverse set of, uh, a diverse faculty, of having diverse colleagues, 
and um, and I think that that those things are important. I I um, I think everyone who has either been a woman who's gone up through leadership, who is a, a minority in any way, realizes that the longer you go, the fewer there are, and um, and that there is nothing about continuing to go up in these careers that protects you from those sexist, racist, other types of biased comments. There is nothing. Um, but that being said, I think it's all the more important that you are out there and doing it because the only way things change is for us to continue to to continue on in these types of roles. And that's that has been very important to me. It's very important to me both in, you know, the um, I I recognize that being out there visibly is is an important thing. I know that there will be slights that come and those are hard to deal with. Um, I, I have a, a great um, network of people I talk to, and uh, I think having that is important. Um, but I also, I, I, I don't think things change unless we're willing to try to, to, to push against some of those things. And so that's, that's that uh, even when it's hard, I think those are the types of things that are important. And it's what's made me love being a, me- a mentor, frankly, because I think being able to, to talk with others about what it's like, others who may not come from our traditional way we've thought about academic medicine, about what it's, you know, how wonderful it is to be part of academic medicine, I think, uh, I think hopefully opens this career up to, to many more so that we continue to have really a, a diverse institution. Thank you. That's uh, very inspiring. Uh, let's open it up and see if anybody has any questions or thoughts. And if you do, raise your hand. I think we have a mic for you and say who you are and what you do. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, I'm Manch, and I'm an academics um, intern for anesthesia. So I wanted to ask your comments or advice on someone who's transitioning from a molecular research basis into a clinical, and what sort of hurdles you had, and tips. Yeah, so it, it's a really um, it's a really good good question. I think that um, I think that. Um, Again, I, I don't want to portray the choices that happened over life as doors closing, but I think they are, I think over time you have to recognize the types of things where you have the ability to contribute uniquely in a unique way to, to something moving forward, right? And so one, and there's not unlimited hours in the day, right? You can't do everything, right? I think the challenge for those people who are trained in a molecular way to then become clinicians is that if you're going to practice as a clinician, it, that takes time. And so then the question is, how do you do something that, that is scientifically fulfilling, that is scientifically valuable with the rest of the hours that you, that you have, right? Um, I, and for me, it is not true for everybody. Everyone has to make this choice their own way. But I think that, that the choice is one that people have to make. They have to think about it. Um, I think what you, as a clinician, what you have that is invaluable, that, that, um, that you have uniquely is usually your access to patients, your access to, um, to a clinical environment. And the closer that, um, that meshes with your scientific interests, the, the, the easier it will be to work in both arenas, right? Um, what does that mean? So some people, they are still in the lab, but they're thinking much more about the patient samples that they have access to because of the clinical arena that they work in, right? So they're doing maybe something that looks more early translational, right? Because they're, that's, that's where they're working. Some are realizing that they don't necessarily want to continue as 
um, the leaders of a research group, they want to be collaborators in a research group, right? So, and I, I, I think the challenge is not seeing those as you're failing in a particular arena. I think it's, it's, it's that, you know, you still have a certain number of hours in a day. And uh, the example I give from myself is, um, so I do, I, I, all of my early work is in heart failure, right? I, I love doing, um, I'm very interested in heart failure. It's the area that I, that I published in. Um, I am not a cardiologist. I cannot, I'm not going to be able to write certain types of papers in there. And I could learn a lot about it. I can learn every echo parameter I want to, and I could pretend to go do it, but it, that's, that's, not, that's not worth my spending the time doing. I'd rather collaborate with cardiologists, and so I write a lot of papers with cardiologists. I write a lot of papers with nephrologists, right, because I'm still an internist. So what do I uniquely bring? I uniquely bring a perspective of prevention, what it means to have no disease and think about getting these diseases newly. I have, because I haven't spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to cath people, I, I, my, I know a lot about research methods. So when I collaborate with a cardiologist or a nephrologist who may not have that training, that's what I bring uniquely. But, it's, but you have to think of what you, uh, what you can bring that is your sort of comparative advantage. That would be my advice to you and is fulfilling to you and then how you build your career. And not to frame that there's some hierarchy of this is the right thing to no. do if you're really good or smart, no. you should do that. It's, exactly. <laughs> you can work it out where you are happy, you are making a contribution. Yes. You, you know, go home at the end of the day and life's good on the outside. You've That's won right. the game. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. Any others? Yeah. Say, say who we are. Let's, thanks, Katie. I'm Amy. I'm one of the internal medicine R3s. Um, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you made the transition from doing clinical work and research work to also doing some public policy work. And if you have any suggestions for those of us from clinical backgrounds potentially interested in doing the same. Yeah, thanks. That's a it's a great question. I remember so George Sawaya, who's OBGYN here at UCSF. He was on the task force before me, and I remember I was first few years on faculty, and I was sitting in grand rounds, and he was talking about the task force, and I was like, Oh my God, I really want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, I would say um, uh, so. One of the things that I have appreciated over time is that when you have the idea of what you want to be doing is not to feel um, uh, concerned that you're not doing everything all at once. I think there's, we, we do, because we get to where we are, that, you know, we've checked the box all along the way, we did all these things on our CV so that you can get to this next step. And part of the problem about building a career once you finish uh, school and programs is it's not always obvious. And so then it's like, well, I, I'm, what am I not doing that I'm supposed to be doing to get to that step? I, I think actually being involved and take and being a little bit opportunistic and just seeing the things that are along the way and continuing to talk and express interest um, that you w- without being worried that you are not doing the thing that's going to get you to the next thing is probably the most important important thing um, for me when they called me to invite me to the task force I knew I was going to say yes but the question was well what how did I get there well I had written papers that were papers about prevention, and I was very willing to talk about things, right? So I wouldn't miss the opportunity to do the policy brief, you know what I'm saying, to go to Sacramento, to talk with other people. So I was very out there and communicating, but it was very focused on the specific work that I was doing. And I think that, um, you know, that got me talking with other people who think in, in a different way. So 
for my own case, it was, it was not focused on I got to get to the task force. It was I, I'm doing this research. I want my research to influence policy. Therefore, I'm not going to just communicate in a paper. I'm going to actually get involved in, you know. And I think that there are many ways that as clinicians, whether you're a researcher, education, or doing clinical work, that getting involved in the policy arena, trust me, the you know, there's so many people who would love you as a doctor to, to play a role in doing that. There's so many people because you have such a, a, a prominent voice as, a, as an MD taking a position on a particular issue that learning in those arenas will give you more opportunities in those arenas. And more about the brand that I'm sure that when you did that thing, you did yeah. it well. Yes. And people said, oh, she's good at that. Yes. And here's another thing. It's not like you say, I'm going to get from here to here. It's all of these intermediate steps and being noticed. And one thing leads to another. That's exactly right. Yeah. Any others? About five minutes left. I have a question. Right. I'm Katie. I'm one of the chief residents here. I wondered if you could speak a moment about the dissemination of guidelines once they're, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into creating yeah. them. And then we sometimes find that even physicians have a hard time incorporating them into their practice. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how we can improve upon that. Yeah, I, I, it's really it's such an important thing. And it's one of those things that, you know, we have this budget for the task force that, you know, is really deep on the evidence-based practice center, systematic reviews, what we're doing to get there. And then what we need to do is all this other stuff that has to do with dissemination. I think we've tried to take on the role by partnering with groups that do, that know how to do things, that know how to develop, you know, aids that can go into the electronic health records, that know how to, um, you know, develop the apps or develop the decision rules or who think or who do um, work on focus groups so that we can communicate, figure out what aspects of these um, are, are best able, uh, help us to, to communicate most effectively. We, as a task force, we haven't done that in a very systematic way. We've just mostly tried to partner with people. Some of the things that I'm optimistic about, though, are the fact that, um, and I don't know that we even anticipated this um, in working as a task force, but that we, um, because we, we took on much more of a communication roles, a lot of the groups that were thinking about electronic health records and guidelines in electronic health records liked the way we were communicating and thought about that this was a way we as a, we as a health system, we as a hospital, this is what we will adopt. And I think that, that that is the way those types of things will happen, is um, you know, that individual clinicians need to know, but mostly also systems and groups need to know. The other thing is, I think, um, so in addition, so that's on the clinical side. I think that, um, I think that communicating with the patient advocacy groups is also a big part of it. One of the most interesting things that I learned actually talking with Andy Beinman was, um, uh, you know, for any given hospital, the decision, the mammography decisions have to do with how they, people think about the task force and how people think about the radiologist and the OBGYNs. And that's a lot of, um, um, interclinician types of discussions about what we're going to do. But I think we have to, in my view, give people the tools to have those discussions. And that's been our approach mostly in how so we do Maybe this will be the last one, but I, I follow up on that. Do you worry about a day where all of the guidelines essentially are hardwired from your brain on the task force into an electronic health record? And they are disseminated that way, and we pass that messy stage of talking about it, getting buy-in, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's a super good point because because um, while I think that the you know the putting things in the electronic health record helps, that is of course the big concern, right? And um, and that's why I wouldn't want it just to be in electronic health records. But there is the conversation now. If you look now at UCSF, what is in our electronic health records is the radiologist guidelines for mammography, which is start at forty every year all the time, right? So I'm the chair of the task force, but we don't do that here. I get my mammography recommendations every year for me to have a mammogram. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines are women in their 40s should think about it, right? There's value, and you might decide to do it, or you might decide not to do it, right? So there are competing groups putting out guidelines, Absolutely. and this is one that was put out by radiologists. Absolutely. So, but what's the right answer? The right answer, I think, is that we is not what we usually do, that we as a, as a community here should probably have the discussion on what's the right thing to do. And that isn't then about the hard wiring, but it is about sort of how do we, even as an institution, we know that um, having those reminders helps us to do things in a more systematic way. But then we should figure out how we as a community um, understand what's in the guidelines and, and, and figure out the way we communicate the range of possibilities in, so that clinicians can have the messy dis- discussions in the backdrop of what the science sort of tells us. Great. Kirsten, you've had an inspiring career, and this is a wonderful talk, and really appreciate you doing this. Thanks Not so much. Not at all. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.